www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. Rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. Number, you weren't a man, you want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow, and hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Hi, this is Gene. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show, and I'm going to be your host for today's show. Today we'll be airing a panel discussion on prison abolition and climate justice. But first up, some news and announcements. Last Wednesday, a solitary letter-writing night took place at Frigo Ver for Ramsey Orta. Ramsey Orta filmed the police killing of his friend Eric Garner in 2014. His film circulated around the world infusing the growing Black Lives Matter and anti-police brutality movements. Because of this, Orta became a, a, a police target himself. Subject to heightened police surveillance and harassment after the video of Garner's killing circulated, Orta was arrested by the NYPD in February 2015 for drug trafficking and possession of a firearm, which Orta says was planted by the police. He has since been confined in a series of jails and prisons, and has been subjected to near-constant harassment and violence from prison guards. This has included harassment, verbal threats, beatings, attempted poisoning, and repeated stints in solitary confinement. And as the guards penalize order for minor uh, violations, his release date will be pushed back constantly. Ramsey Orta is currently imprisoned in Collins Correctional Facility, which is about two hours south of Montreal almost within CKUT's broadcast range. His support uh, committee in New York uh, City requests for people to write him to erase his morale. His mailing address is Ramsey Orta, 16A4200, Collins Correctional, Middle Road, Post Office Box 340, Collins, New York, 
1-4-0-3-4. Next Thursday, October 3rd, is a day of action to end migrant detention. Listeners are invited to participate in a caravan and noise demonstration against the new migrant prison in Lavelle. Starting outside CBSA offices, a caravan will be traveling around the island of Montreal and stopping in different neighborhoods, St. Henri, Cotonège, Park Extension, and Montreal North, building towards a noise demonstration in Lavelle at 4.30 p.m. Bring pots, pans, noisemakers, and instruments. Bring your signs, banners, and poetry against borders and prisons. Bring your love and your rage. There will be food and music. To join the caravan, you must register before noon next Wednesday, October 2nd, to reserve a seat on the bus. For more information, write to Solidarity Across Borders via email at solidaritysansfrontier at gmail.com or call 514-809-0773. Next, we'll hear a panel discussion on prison abolition and climate justice featuring Robin Maynard, Cedar, and Carl L. Jones. They were asked the question, what does prison abolition mean for climate justice? environmental devastation, pipelines, and incarceration to institutionalize racism is not drawn often enough. And we want to talk about why prison abolition needs to enter the mainstream understanding of what climate work is. So how does entering the carceral system relate to climate justice? Um, undoing entrenched systems of racism and violence and moving towards a just society begins with reparations, alternatives to policing, and the dismantling of the prison industrial complex. And these are integral foundational blocks for justice. So what obligation does climate justice advocates have to include principles of restorative and transformative justice in their work? And what can that look like? How can the climate movement work for prison abolition as a core strategy for shared liberation and a society where all are welcome and safe? So we have three panelists with us today. We have Robin Maynard, Cedar, and Elle Jones. Uh, we're going to go in that order. So uh, first of all, I'm going to introduce Robin Maynard. Robin Maynard is a PhD student and Vanier scholar at the University of Toronto and the author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. Policing Black Lives is a national bestseller currently in its third printing, designated as one of the best 100 books of 2017 by the Hill Times, listed in the Walrus Best Books of 2018, shortlisted for an Atlantic Book Award, the Concordia University First Book Prize, and the Mavis Gallant Prize for, for Nonfiction, and the winner of the 2017 Annual Errol Morris Book Prize. This work received a starred review in Publishers Weekly, as well as a glowing coverage in the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, now Toronto, Maclean's, and the Ottawa Citizen. In the words of the Winnipeg Free Press, every Canadian, Black, White, Indigenous, or otherwise, could benefit from reading Rob, uh, Maynard's frank and thorough assessment of racism in Canada. 
In fall of 2018, the book was published in French, uh, and it is currently in a, a finalist for the 2019 Prix de Libre in the category of essay. Maynard, who won 2018 Author of the Year by Montreal's Black History Month, has published writing in the Washington Post, the World Policy Journal, the Toronto Star, Topia, Canadian Journal of Cultural Studies, Canadian Women's Studies, Critical Ethnic Studies in Journal, Scholar and Feminist Journal forthcoming, as well as an essay in Maisonneuve Magazine, which won the acclaim for most read essay of 2017. Her writing on race, gender, and discrimination is taught widely in universities across Canada and the United States. Her expertise is regularly sought in local, national, and international media outlets, and she has spoken before parliamentary subcommittees, the Human Rights Committee of the Senate, and the United Nations Working Group of Experts of People on Community Activism, Racial Profiling, Policing, for over a decade and has an extensive work history in harm reduction-based service provision, serving sex, worker, sex workers, drug users, incarcerated women, and marginalized youth in Montreal. She is Kelkin Robin. We'll throw it to you first. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I am really glad to be here with such great company. I'm really happy to be speaking with Elle Jones and Cedar about what I think is one of the, you know, the really crucial discussions of our time which is what does prison abolition mean for climate justice? I wanted to speak in a way that makes sense for people that are new to the basic tenets of prison abolition and also hopefully get into some specifics that will bring helpful analysis for those in the climate justice movements who are also more aware of abolition politics. So first though, before moving forward, I just wanted to briefly talk about how I'm conceiving of abolition so that it's not something that's taken for granted. Abolition in the way that I'll be speaking about it today means acknowledging the incomplete abolition of slavery upon that, you know, the so-called emancipation in 1834, uh, the end of formal chattel slavery uh, being legalized in, in uh, that have become Canada. Um, the, the ending of these forms of racial punishment uh, have also endured, even if they've undertaken important shifts in a wide assortment of state institutions. So in terms of policing, prisons, detention centers, uh, you know, as well, child welfare and schools. But in particular, if we follow Angela Davis, incarceration emerges as a really important way of controlling black people's lives in the wake of slavery's abolition. Uh, you can see the historic link, uh, you know, in Canada where the first prison was built in 1834, the year that slavery was abolished. Uh, policing was really the front arm of controlling black peoples and black indigenous people and indigenous, sorry, people's movements in public spaces. vis-a-vis -vis crime control, the war on drugs, all of these um, issues that developed later, of course, in the 20th century. So I just wanted us to think about uh, what abolition means in that context. I'm going to be speaking more about uh, black populations, but of course in Canada, a country with a long and still not over history of settler colonialism, we need to understand that other racialized kinds of control are built into this uh, as well. So when we speak about abolition, it's thinking about the elimination of slavery's institutional afterlife. So that means the end of prisons, the end of border regulations in particular, and also about building a different kind of society that's not based on just absence, but also the presence of fuller forms of justice that don't rely on placing people in cages, not looking towards some kind of racially proportionate harm where there is an identical you know, representation of black and white and indigenous, for example, people uh, proportionate to our population in the prison, but to actually end that violence entirely. So having established sort of the means of where we're going, I thought it would be helpful then to say, you know, why prison abolition and climate injustice, uh, and climate justice. And I think to do this topic uh, its own justice, we, it actually helps to attend to the terms in the opposite way. 
So what is the relationship between captivity and climate injustice? I think if we look at it this way, it helps us to oppose both of these things if we understand how they both sort of have historically evolved together and how they function together today. So prisoners, of course, uh, whether they're incarcerated in prisons or jails or immigration detention centers, are captive populations uh, subject to deprivation, vulnerable to extreme kinds of neglect, um, especially black and indigenous populations due to just systemic racist, uh, racist neglect. So what does this mean in the context of climate disaster? Of course, there are very clear ways of understanding that, right? If we look to, for example, heat waves in the United States, uh, where prisoners across the country have been talking about chronic abuse due to extreme heat, which we also saw you know, in Burnside uh, just last summer, right? We see that the way that already being deprived of the ability to move, the ability to have really any of what are considered rights um, places people who are incarcerated in any form at extreme risk of what, you know, some of the ways that we think about climate disaster that we're already living with, right? Which heat waves are already something that's starting to be very much a part of our lives. Something that I think we need to be wary of though as well uh, is that the way that the carceral state, if we don't think about prison abolition, if we just think about you know, for example, the ways that that could harm prisoners, then the carceral state also upholds itself as a way of solving climate injustice. So one primary way that that's been done, um, and Justin Pichet had sent uh, uh, a really great article along about, uh, about this, looks at actually how uh, prisons have been sort of remarketing themselves as proponents of, you know, green energy. Uh, we see this as well with the creation of the Laval Immigration Prevention Center, or that's what it's called in, sorry, that's the translation for, from French. The Laval Immigration Detention Center is marketing the new uh, Immigration Detention Center as using, of course, leadership in energy and environmental design standards as if it's sort of this, uh, a solution uh, to the kinds of racial injustices that we're seeing. So I think we need to be able to answer the question, why not build bigger, greener prisons, make them more disaster ready? Um, and we need to think about how reforming prisons or greening them is not something that those of us concerned with the environment should allow ourselves to be concerned with. We should actually be thinking more broadly about what it would mean to end the, uh, you know, the global and racial harms of environmental devastation, as well as uh, ending different racialized kinds of punishment. So to help understand this, I just wanted to briefly turn towards a few of the historical explorations between uh, captivity and climate injustice. And I, I believe that Elle wants to speak to this as well, so I'll try not to take too much time on it. But I think it's important that we understand that the intersections between racial and environmental devastation have long-standing roots that, and one cannot be stopped without the other, that these are two intersecting kinds of harms that have always been. Uh, that the climate emergency is modern, but the racially disproportionate effect, and the racially disproportionate effects, sorry, are modern, but the roots of this massive, you know, ecological devastation, uh, this massive kinds of racialized captivity of mass of black people in prison, of indigenous people in prison, um, were not historically inevitable, but instead, um, these two things evolved alongside the ecological devastation along evolved alongside a history of racialized control. So black, if we think about racial violence and environmental violence as intertwined, we can look to the pillaging of the vast majority of the world's resources, how this emerged from indigenous genocide, the labor of captive Africans in North, South America, and the Caribbean, and the partitioning of Africa into resources to steal and people to rule over. You know, if we, if we understand slavery as propelling the capitalist revolution, 
uh, the Industrial Revolution and the ensuing apocalyptic disaster of mass industrialization, deforestation of indigenous territories of Canada, Europe, South America, globally, um, I think it makes a lot more sense that we can see how these farms have always functioned together. To give just one example, if we look to the Royal Dutch Shell Company, for example, um, which is now, you know, by the time of Nigerian independence in 1960, it was one of the most powerful corporations that had been taking oil from uh, the region for, for decades, right? And we see that now the Nigerian Delta is home to 159 oil fields with uh, over a thousand oil wells, right? So if we think about the people that are currently facing detention and deportation in Canada, right? We have this mass number of Nigerian people who have crossed the border from the United States into Canada, those that are consider considered the so-called refugee crisis, but this is still very much linked to ongoing kinds of resource extraction uh, and neo-imperialism in this moment. Um, one example that I think really helps make this clear uh, in terms of the ways that incarceration was, uh, was brought to light by Black Lives Matter United Kingdom who stopped a flight a few years ago at Grand Heathrow Airport saying that black people were marked as first to die in the climate crisis, uh, pointing to the massive emissions in Britain that were causing uh, climate change and causing displacement of African peoples all over the world. Um, so I think this shows us many things, that the what's called the migrant crisis, which is really the world's highest rates of, of displacement since World War II and is very much related to the high rates of detention and deportation that we're seeing, is deeply related to environmental collapse and that this emerges from the long-standing history of racial capitalism. At the end of formal colonization, we saw, of course, a massive increase in the control of migrants entering countries like Canada. And again, that coincided with the creation of the prison industrial complex of immigration jails uh, proliferating just at the same time as we see those neocolonial structural adjustment programs imposing monoculture, devastating local ecology, and preventing people's ability to move freely, right? So that's really important that we actually view all of these kinds of injustices as both historically and presently wrapped up in one another. Thinking about how in a country like Canada, most black people born elsewhere, um, uh, where, where most black people were born elsewhere, sorry, both prisons and immigration detention centers can be understood of having grown out of attempts to control black and racialized people's entry even as Canada, along with the United States and European industries, uh, continue to pillage black people's homelands worldwide. The mass criminalization of black people is one of ways of controlling the movement across borders, which is especially uh, in the current moment a response to climate crisis, to the climate crisis, I apologize. I guess the last thing that I wanted to point to, I have one minute, so I'll just really briefly point to that example that I briefly raised, which is the Laval Immigration Detention Center, because as we can see, um, you know, I've spoken to lawyers there that have talked about that anyhow, there are really high rates of black migrants there. Many of them are migrants who have first been criminalized and are now facing deportation, but it really is touting itself as, you know, a green, uh, a green solution after the 2016 migrant uh, hunger strike that took place when Ralph Goodall pledged, you know, $138 million uh, to rebuild uh, to sort of address these issues. Instead, they ended up deciding to rebuild, to build a new immigration detention center, which is pledging itself as energy efficient and more humane. Uh, so this again poses a really important moment in their protests happening, I believe even today and again in October, to, to de-link uh, these issues. So finally, I'll just let finish. 
uh, and say that prison abolition has lessons for the climate justice movement as well, because abolition demands more than piecemeal reforms, more than green and eco prisons, more than humane prisons, but an end to prisons and into caging more broadly. So similarly, you know, I think that, of course, really the deep kinds of climate justice that we see understand that these piecemeal reforms like carbon credits, for example, are not going to solve the massive devastation and the ecological devastation that we're currently seeing under capitalism. So just to end by saying that abolition is not just ending racial captivity, it's a process of world building. And if we view that world building as also interrupting the devastating logic of uh, racial capitalism and climate destruction, we can really start to imagine uh, a, freer, a freer world. For everyone that's just joining us, we're kicking off the prison abolition and climate justice panel. We want to like pull out a couple of threads about what Robin's saying as well is, you know, when we talk about, when we think about mainstream climate movements, this word greenwashing comes up and the greenwashing of the capitalist system that is in, deeply invested in racial inequity is flourishing in how we conceive of prisons. So to bring that into how we're talking about our analysis, uh, I'm going to move on to our next speaker. Um, our next speaker is Cedar. Uh, Cedar is an anarchist who lives in Hamilton, Ontario, and who, through involvement in various struggles over the years, has ended up with a fair bit of firsthand experience of prison, most recently in June of this year, following the successful defense of Pride Hamilton from far-right aggression. Cedar sees prison and police as, fund as a fundamental issue that any social or environmental struggle must confront, since beneath the level of discourse, the state and capitalists and capitalists defend their interests with these instruments of naked force. Thanks for joining us, Cedar. I feel a little bit scattered, honestly, because uh, we're just getting evicted today. So you can see I'm sitting here in my empty house uh, right next to the modem on the floor, just uh, dealing with moving and all of these things. So it's a bit of a confusing time. But yeah, like Maya said, uh, I live in Hamilton, where I've been involved in lots of different kinds of social struggles over the years and environmental struggles specifically around anti-gentrification and uh, opposing pipelines, like the Line 9 pipeline through the area. Yeah, and through this work, I've experienced a lot of state repression. And repression is a word that I guess we used to just refer to the kinds of violence that the state reserves using like its armed forces, which is like the police or soldiers or intelligence agencies, uh, and how they use that violence to crush forms of dissent that go beyond their ability to kind of control and bring them back into this like narrative of, democracy and discourse and conversation that we're all having. So yeah, I guess over the years I've been to jail like five times for protest activity in different ways. Um, mostly this has been for conspiracy charges. So it's just related to organizing protests or actions of various kinds uh, and then getting targeted for that work. Yeah, and most recently that was uh, with, with stuff in Hamilton around pride and the far right. Um, I was hoping there was another person here today who was gonna talk more about issues related to parole but uh, that was actually, it was interesting because that was for a parole violation, which is just such a reminder of the way that prison follows people out into society, right? Like we think about it as being just these walls, like just these cages, but in fact, it's like a whole suite of, of, of systems of control that shape our behavior in some very fundamental ways. So what I want to talk about today is just why I think everyone should care about prison, even if you're never going to go in there yourself, even if you never have anyone you care about on the inside. I want to talk about why I think this matters deeply to everybody who cares about creating a better world. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because people don't like to talk about prison very much, which I guess in some ways makes sense just because one of the first things that prison produces is silence. From the, from the courtroom 
where you've got a, a guy getting paid a half million dollars a year to the center on, on a pedestal and pass judgment on broke people, all the way down to where the cell doors close and certain voices are literally physically locked away. That we're being, this institution is based on the idea that some people's words don't matter, that their perspectives are dangerous to society. Uh, their ways of living and being, their bodies need to be deeply controlled uh, out of some idea of common good. And frankly, I don't accept any kind of common good that has people in cages, frankly. Just, I, I know it's a bit of a hard sell, but uh, maybe I'll take you a little bit of the way there. So in another way though, it's weird that people don't want to talk about prison because beyond that silence, we're all touched by it, even if you never go there yourself. It's one of the fundamental institutions. It's one of the backbones that holds up society. It's a, nece it's a necessary support for all sorts of daily interactions. For instance, like when I give all my money to a landlord <laughs> each month, or when I wear myself out during my boss's bidding, uh, it's the threat of prison that's keeping me there. It's, it keeps us all in line in these ways. And I know this example's just on my mind right now, but I think about this act of getting evicted today and uh, having to pack all of my shit and like move away and dealing with these forms of like precarity, um, just so that my landlord, a man, who's like a rich guy who just owns more homes than he even can live in. Uh, he can suck more cash out of us. He can go get a different tenant. He's gonna pay him more money. And frankly, I, there's no way I would leave here if there wasn't prison and police hiding in the background. This is my home. And yet that fear rides me. It rides my friends, rides the people I care about, you know? And, and that fear was inside of me even before I ever heard like the prison guard jangling their keys, you know? Like it's always been there, even if we can't articulate it. It's one of the things that keeps us I don't know, keeps us peaceful when we're facing choices between like paying for our phone bills or paying for food. It's, it's, it's just one of those things that lubricates all of these interactions that are fundamentally coerced, you know? And that's the form of the state kind of having this naked violence that kind of keeps us in line, right? And so we can avoid that naked violence when we take the logic of the state, which is its laws, and we internalize them into ourselves and begin to enforce them on ourselves, right? So our experience of peace in society is also our ability to kind of internalize these things. Which, which we have to do because the injustice of it is pretty obvious, right? Like thinking about who's in jail, like Robin touched on this, it's like pretty glaring that just like some people are filling cages and some people are filling boardrooms, you know? And, I, and, and when we think about where the real violence in society comes from, and we think about that idea of the common good, like personally, I've never seen a thief drive a family from their homes, all right? And like here I am having to move out. And I just, and I never seen like some, a shoplifter uh, drive a pipeline through somebody's watershed, poison their future, or even just like doom the children with rising oceans, you know, like I think about these kinds of things and I think about the structures of like right and wrong that come along with them. And the things that I see as being more wrong in the eyes of society are individuals standing up for themselves, standing up for their communities, right? And I think that's a reason why as people here today who care about environment stuff, who care about climate change, that sooner or later, if we follow our ideas to their logical conclusion, we're going to run up against these institutions. We're going to run up against them in hard ways. And I think we need to build our analysis around that because there's all these systems to hide that violence. Like prison is wrapped up within this kind of beautiful spectacle of the justice system, you know, where everything's just like neat and tidy. Um, and where the, everybody can use like lots of big words to like justify what underneath is just naked force. It's just bodies in cages. I think we need to come to terms with prison as people who resist industrial capitalism, want to resist ecological destruction, who want to resist like terrible outcomes in the future, we need to come to terms with the inevitability of facing repression. Um, because if you're, if you're determined in your struggle, if you take things through to their logical conclusion, if you resist that fear, um, you're likely to end up there, frankly. I'm likely to end up there again. 
I don't think we can do this work and care about being effective and also guarantee that we're not going to go to jail. And that's a scary thought, you know, but I'm not, I'm not here to scare you today. Like, I, I really just want us to think honestly about that. Because I think one of the ways that we fight fear, which is ultimately the thing that keeps us in line more than police with guns ever could, is through accurate information and through preparation, right? And through knowing that we have each other's backs. Like, our weapon is solidarity. And one of the things that keeps me brave and that made it possible for me to like, take risks during this pride stuff and to hold my head up while I was in jail and come out and feel okay was just knowing that I've got a community of people who for years, like for decades, we've been like building up our analysis around prison. We've been taking our struggle physically to the prison walls. We've been like building links with prisoners. I knew I wasn't going to be alone. I knew people were going to be outside that jail, setting off fireworks, spray painting the damn place, uh, sending letters, filling up my canteen, like doing all of these things. And that's not separate from other forms of struggle because any struggle whether it's around gentrification issues, whether it's around resisting the far right, whether it's around migration, all of these things, sooner or later, you're gonna to have to deal with the police. And I think when we talk about climate change, we're talking about lots of different things here, right? So like, whether we're talking about the causes of climate change, we're talking about resisting pipelines, or whether we're talking about resisting the violence of borders, which is how the state is trying to deal with the effects of climate change, we're talking about material, physical structures, right? And I think thinking about ways to make have our resistance to the state and to the world it represents go beyond the kind of rhetorical and symbolic level and touch things on that material level. I think that can be extremely powerful. And it's just a good question to give ourselves is how do we, how do we go about this, you know? But one thing just to quickly wrap up, I think I've been going on for a little, about as long as I should here, is one thing that the prison shows me, and I think when we look at it closely, what it can show any of us is that the state is not a tool. It's not just an instrument that we could take charge of and like use differently. It's not a thing we can throw some different party into office and suddenly we'll live in a fundamentally different world. The state is something to overcome. It has its own interests. Uh, those interests are built into it on a material structural level, whether that's prisons or pipelines. And then the state tries to get us to think that its goals are our own. It wants us to internalize its goals and carry those interests around with us, almost as if the state was a part of ourselves, as if it was like our most important relationship, you know? Which in some way it is. Like, I feel like in this era where none of us can hold down steady jobs, like the state is very close to us through like welfare and social programs, and the economy is very far away, you know? So like maybe we are just deeply dependent on that. We need to go towards each other and find each other and make the people we care about and share things with our most important relationship again. We need to refuse to be good citizens, to carry the state around, you know? And talking about getting rid of prison in a real material way, that involves sweeping away a lot of the social relations of exploitation that this society is built on. It talks about fundamentally challenging the economic system. It talks about doing away with wage relations, private property. Like a lot of these things are going to be deeply challenged and we'll probably have to change shape if we actually want to live in a world without prison. Uh, similarly, I mean, talking about climate change, like we're talking about one of the fundamental ways that like material resources are distributed through society, right? And just talking about the way the consequences of that are externalized, the forms of inequality that that produces here and around the world, you know, like that, we're talking about living in a world that none of us has stepped into yet. And one of the first things that I learned going to prison was that I've never been free. And when I think about freedom, when I think about just social relations, I'm talking about taking steps towards a place that I've never been to. I'm talking about drawing the map with our feet as we move. And so in order to do that, we need to find each other. We need to have honest conversations about what we think is appropriate and effective. We need to find ways to break down that fear, build those practices of solidarity, and build up a commitment to action together, you know? And refusing the forms of like mediation that the state puts towards us, like whether it's through political parties or media or social media or whatever, and just focus on our relationships and our ability to act materially. 
I'm, into, I'm interested in any conversation that takes that as a starting point. And I look forward to talking with you more tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cedar. Also for folks just joining, we're encouraging anyone coming from climate organizing to really think about how we conceptualize of reforms and that any type of true climate justice work that centers people that need to be heard means throwing reforms out the window and really encouraging that we challenge all types of state marginalization, uh, control, uh, silencing. We're gonna move on to our next speaker. Um, our next speaker is Al Jones. L. Jones is a spoken word poet, an author, an educator, journalist, and a community activist living in African Nova Scotia. She was the fifth poet laureate of Halifax. In 2016, L. was the recipient of the Burnley Rocky Jones Human Rights Award for her community work and work in prison justice. She is a co-founder of the Black Power Hour, a live radio show with incarcerated people on CKDU that creates space for people inside to share their creative work and discuss contemporary social and political issues. Alongside this work, she supports women in Nova, in Nova Institution in writing and sharing their voices. Elle was recently named the Nancy's Chair of Women's Studies at Mount St. Vincent University for the 2017-2019 term. Her book of spoken word poetry, Live from the African Resistance, was published in Roseway Press in 2014. Elle would like to pay tribute to the many nameless and unrecognized women whose work makes it possible for her to be here today. Welcome, Elle. Thanks for joining us. Wow, there's a lot of uh, stress going after like two really brilliant people that have covered so much ground. So I'm going to try and move in the gaps and pick up on maybe a couple of things said by Robin and Cedar. Um, so the first thing I wanted to pick up on a bit is what Cedar talked about with um, when she said, you know, nobody who's been convicted of stealing has, you know, like run a pipeline through someone's house or evicted something, someone. So I think a really important point to, to first engage with is how we think about crime itself, because we sort of think that there's a logic that people commit crimes and that's a reality and then we have to punish it somehow. But of course, um, corporate crime is never punished. So, you know, if you steal a bottle of pop from Walmart, you're going to do jail time. But if you steal millions and trillions of dollars from people through the banking industry, none of those people served any time in prison. Uh, corporate polluters that are polluting the entire environment are not serving any time in prison. But, uh, you know, people that are convicted of assaults on the street are. And that's not to say that the solution is therefore to put more people in prison, like that then we just need to expand prisons, but to point out that that goes to the root of why we think about some crimes as crimes and some crimes as not crimes, and then believe that some people need to be punished. But of course, street crime is treated as crime. And then we call everything else financial crime or white collar crime or some kind of lesser crime that isn't crime. So I think that's really important because one of the sort of sticking points that people have for thinking about prison abolition is, well, what about victims? What about harm? What about punishment? What about holding people accountable? As though, you know, we hold everybody accountable in equal ways in the first place. So I just wanted to raise that point and pick up on what Cedar already eloquently raised there. Um, the second point I think I want to talk about, and if anybody's read uh, Shereen Razek's book, Race, Space, and the Law, this entire book talks about this. So. Uh, when we think about the environment, you know, it, it's kind of vast in some ways, right? Like we're like, okay, and it's everything in the environment. So to kind of narrow down a bit, if we start thinking about space, um, Shreen Razak talks about this and how space is race. So place is race itself, right? So um, the examples she gives obviously are at the very root of the settlement of so-called Canada 
is this myth of Canada as this wide open space, the true north, strong and free, unpopulated by anybody. And settlers then imagine themselves pioneering through this space. So uh, space itself defines power, it defines race, um, how we move around society. So the prison obviously interacts with that, right? The prison is a definite space. So if we think about, for example, Joey Twins, who was going to join us today and who was part of the, the uprising at the Kingston Prison for Women in the 90s, right? Um, and that, that was about the way that people are put into space. So putting people into solitary confinement, the literal opening of windows to bring cold air in to harm people. Um, the, the way that women were then at, like literally had male guards coming in and, and cutting their clothes off, right? So we think about the prison as a space where these kind of a micro environment where the things that we're more concerned about or think we're concerned about globally outside the prison are, are really concentrated. The prison is about gender, right? We, we have men's prisons and women's prisons and we claim in Canada now we have, you know, like trans friendly prisons, but the reality is a prison is still a gendered space that polices gender. A prison is obviously a class space. It's a space where some people wear uniforms and some people don't. It's a space where some people carry keys and some people don't. It's a race space. So just to think about then how we take that outward into the environment. Um, so just to go and expand on some of what Robin said, um, it's really important, I think, as we think about things like colonization and enslavement to understand the role that land had in that in the first place and environment had in that. So obviously colonization was quite literally about the theft of land, the theft of resources, the theft of labor. Um, we can think about indigenous people being moved onto reserves, directly moved off places where people were hunting, where people were sustaining the environment and deliberately put into non-sustainable environments where people then have to struggle to continue generational ways of living. So that's about the environment. Um, enslavement, there's a sort of myth often that, you know, we were taken into slavery because we were, you know, lesser and didn't have you know, like we were beasts, right? But in fact, of course, they were going to take people that had particular farming knowledges. So the biggest crop in enslavement wasn't cotton, it was sugarcane, right? That's where the vast majority of slaves are taken to in Brazil and across the Caribbean. And sugarcane itself is an incredibly environmentally intensive crop. It uses tons of water, it destroys the land. So we can think of slavery as also a kind of environmental project, displacing people who had sustainable farming knowledge and then bringing them to perform these forms of labor that also then destroy the environment in the plantation system. So I don't have a long time to talk about that, but I want us to also think about how the environment has always been involved in this. And Robin also mentioned this when, when she talked about borders, um, the way that climate justice is mis displacing migrants. So that there's quite literally these forms of um, like how these interact. Uh, the third, I'm trying to go fast, so I'm sorry. Um, I also want to think about the sort of physical building of prisons. So um, in Nova Scotia, for example, prisons are literally built, or in New Brunswick, and this is true across the country, uh, prisons are most often built in communities that are rural communities, right? Um, so communities are experiencing loss of resource. So in uh, Nova Scotia, for example, Spring Hill used to be the site of a mine. There's a very famous mining disaster that takes place there. Um, and Murray's from there. That's the only other thing that happened in Spring Hill. Um, but the mine closes, the traditional industries are, are obviously dying off in Nova Scotia, and then those communities build a prison, right? So when they close Kingston Prison for Women after the, the riot there, they open up five regional prisons for women, and these communities fight over getting these prisons because there's massive construction contracts, there's jobs, right? So rural communities are very invested in the building of prisons, partly because as traditional ways that people had to like fishing is dying, logging, all these things, other environmentally intensive things come, they build a prison, right? Um, 
I also want us to think about the prison environment and the kind of architecture of the prison, what that also says about how we think about the environment. Uh, Robin mentioned heat waves in there. Uh, if you think about in New Orleans during the flood, um, people were flooded in the jail, right? So they were literally drowning prisoners as this is happening. So these climate crises literally are impacting people who are captive at that moment. In California, where there's the wildfires, we have prisoners fighting those fires as forced labor, right? Who are not even allowed to seek work as firefighters once they finish that. So as the environmental disasters happen, the people quite literally on the front lines drowning and burning and doing this labor are incarcerated people. Um, I also ask us to think about you know, the space of the prison. Like, what does it mean to build a space with a solitary confinement cell? Ting's chat talks about this with immigration detention. Like somebody sat in an office and like designed this prison, designed like the literal environment of the prison without windows. The idea that you get under the Correctional Act 30 minutes a day outside, which you never get. But the idea that we actually say how much fresh air and sunlight and access to the outdoors does somebody need for us not to be violating their rights. Uh, during the prison strike in Burnside, that was actually around prison construction. Part of the, the thing that um, propelled that strike that took place last year. So we're at the one year anniversary of prisoners rising up and joining this uh, international prison strike really in the US uh, was partly uh, caused by issues of construction, right? So uh, our province putting millions of dollars into constructing prison in this space, not into treatment beds, not into mental health treatment, and then as the prisoners are moved around in that space and promise certain things and then find out they're not getting it and are living in this environment, this is part of what contributes to that uprising, right? Um, so what I'm saying here is that when we talk about the environment, we tend to sort of think about like the outdoors and okay, like we're talking about the ocean, we're talking about land, but we're also talking about the way that people live and prisons really encapsulate that, right? The, the kind of relationships that are broken, as Cedar said, prisons produce silence, right? What does it mean to have this hidden space? So to go back to Spring Hill, I always kind of joke when I go there that the town should like literally have up signs this way to the prison because why else is anybody in Spring Hill? We're all there to visit people in prison, yet they completely hide it. So I'm like, they should be like welcome families of prisoners because we're the only people that are like, placing resources into that environment, right? But it's, it's, they, they would never do that. It's, it's both what the town depends on and what is completely hidden in the town. Um, I also just wanted to raise things. So around the prison strike, food was an issue there. So like access to sustainable foods, these things that we talk about as issues that are accepted as issues we need to care about until they're present in the prison. So, you know, when we don't have access to any kind of food in the prison farms in Nova Scotia that we're like prisoners of farming to produce fresh food. So we talk about, oh, we need more sustainable organic farming. And then we make sure that prisoners don't even have access to any kind of food that they can eat, right? So what does it mean for climate justice movement if we say these things are true, except not counting this group of people, except depending upon this group of people. So if we want justice, justice always has to depend on all the people involved in that justice. So. Um, you know, like if we talk about the need for, for food, why don't we talk about the need for food for prisoners? Now, of course, the answer isn't as Robin said, like, okay, so let's just like build a farm for prisoners. Like, why don't we have an organic food shop for prisoners? The point is that you can never access those things and those things will never be true while the prison exists. Um, I also just want to highlight the role of prison expansion in Cape Breton right now, which is another, you know, economically depressed area that has lost traditional industries. So of course, there's a plan to build a new prison there. Um, so, you know, that our government at this time has this time to do this incredibly environmental destructive thing, which is literally the building of the prison, which creates all kinds of pollution, uh, cuts down all kinds of trees, uh, like the building of roads into that prison. Like the prison itself is an environmentally intensive, destructive moment. So 
I just have highlighted those kind of things. I'm trying to go fast. I know I, I sort of covered a lot and Robin and Cedar have also gone over that ground. Um, I think when we talk about abolition, um, some of the sort of blocks people have on it are, you know, questions around what around harm, what about the victim, and also questions around, like, what does it mean? So if we close the prison tomorrow, does that mean that, you know, our streets will be overrun by, you know, murderers and rapists, right? Um, but we have to think about prison abolition as a, also a form of relationship building in communities. It's a form of living in different ways with each other. So what does it mean as a community to hold each other accountable for harm? Because a prison doesn't actually hold anybody accountable for harm. It punishes people, but it doesn't ask people, it doesn't ask people what they need. It doesn't ask the victim for closure. It, it, you know, we have an idea that there's a binary between offender and victim and not the idea that, of course, most people who have been victimized are also criminalized and vice versa, right? There's not this easy division. So this kind of binary that we think of, it's very classic of capitalist thought, very classic of how we think about all other things, the gender binary, you know, the idea that there's racial binaries, you know, this is also playing out in how we think about punishment. So as we talk about abolition, it's about coming into new relationships as well. So in the same way as a colonial capitalist society asks us to not be in relationship with the land, it asks us to not be in relationship with nature. It asks us to not be in relationship with ourselves in particular ways, right? Like the ways that we have to consume around that, the ways that we don't live, and I don't mean to sound like a hippie here or whatever, I don't know, but you know, like live in harmony. Um, but that's a real thing. Like we, we sometimes say these things as though they're cliches, but it has meaning, like what it means to live in a balanced way, right? And prison abolition also asks that of us as we transform justice, right? It asks us to think about what it would mean to take care of each other as a community, which also would involve taking care of land. It asks us what it would mean when somebody does harm to actually uh, repair that and to actually think about that, you know? Um, nobody thinks the prison is going to close tomorrow, you know, that suddenly we're just going to close the prison. But the work we have to do in the meantime, as the prison is not closing, as we fight for that, is also ask ourselves in our communities every day what uh, forming that justice looks like, right? So um, if we can't in our friends' circles, um, you know, when somebody causes harm and we want to defend them because we don't know how to deal with sexual assault in our communities, if we can't do that work, we're not going to do the work of prison abolition, right? If we can't, um, hold ourselves accountable for the ways that we consume or the ways that we cause harm, um, how are we going to then ask ourselves to do it on a broader scale? So I think that kind of daily work, which is about asking ourselves hard questions, is about how we live in community, is also an environmental question, right? Because we live in communities that ask us to, you know, be destructive on a daily basis, right? Of, you know, to live among concrete, you know, to not know how to farm, to not have the resources to farm, to not have the resources to care for ourselves in basic ways, to not get mental health care, to not be able to care for our children, to not be able to care for each other. And that is what a prison is based on as well. That is what a carceral mindset is about the absence of care and putting punishment in place. And that is also, of course, what capitalist colonial patriarchy is as well. So I hope that's all right. And I will end. Thank you so much, Elle. We've touched on a million different aspects of this topic right now. So we're drawing on also folk for folks who are just joining or jumping in the conversation is we're drawing, we have a really good historicization that Robin touched on, also the ways in which the colonial project is implemented in today. We understand that the disposability of human beings in prisons is ultimately a form of the capitalist project being expanded and that the expansion of prisons is 
so much more a real-life manifestation of, manifestation of what it means to create ultimate disposability of human beings. And we described it in a bunch of different ways, but we're, of course, talking about what it means to actually make real restorative and transformative justice in our communities and how this is really a, a, a climate issue ultimately. And we're talking about not only just the reforms that come from, you know, I'm thinking about, as all of you are speaking, I the group of seven paintings, which I think a lot of like really white climate organizers like to think about when we think of the environment, which of course had the complete erasure of indigenous communities, of racialized communities, of sustainable ways of living on the land. And that's what prisons do. They kind of erase all of the world that goes on behind the climate and just thinks about the ways in which people can be punished for what they do. And um, we don't really think about the contextualization of these issues. Okay, that was a prepaid a panel discussion on prison abolition and climate justice with speakers Robin Maynard, Cedar, and Al Jones in solidarity with today's climate strike. The panel was organized by The Leap. The time is presently 11.50 a.m. You are listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. Next is an announcement about how to vote from inside prison during the next federal election. As a reminder, all Canadians incarcerated in provincial, territorial, or federal institutions have the right to vote in the October 21st election. If you are one of the 40,000 Canadian adults in federal or provincial custody, here's how you can cast your ballot. First, prisoners must register to vote. This is done by filling out a form. Every institution has to designate a liaison officer who will work with Elections Canada to facilitate the vote for prisoners. Prisoners need to fill out a form called the Application for Registration and Special Ballot to register to vote. Prisoners can get this from the liaison officer as soon as an election or referendum is called. Once it's filled out, prisoners need to return it to their liaison officer for validation. What riding do visitors vote in? It's not always straightforward. Where you live is generally establishes your riding. But for elections, a prisoner's place of residence is not where he or she is incarcerated. Instead, Election Canada will accept the first of the following places for which the elector knows the civic and mailing address, and that determines the correct riding. One, his or her resident before being incarcerated. Two, the residence of a spouse, common-law partner, relative or dependent. Other options are the residence of any relative of his or her common law partner or spouse, or a person the prisoner would live with if not incarcerated. Three, the place of his or her arrest. Four, the last court where the prisoner was convicted and sentenced. Voting day. There are some significant differences between how most Canadians vote versus those who are incarcerated. Prisoners do not vote on election day. Instead, they vote on the 12th day before polling day. This year, that will be October 9th. A polling station is set up in each institution and must be open from 9 a.m. local time until all votes are cast or 8 p.m. local time, whichever comes first. In regular polling stations, voters must show something that proves their identity and current address. They can also have somebody vouch for them. In jail or prison, the voter is given a voting kit. He or she needs to sign a declaration acknowledging that his or her name is correctly shown on the envelope. 
that he or she has not voted already, and that he or she will not try to vote again in the same election. And while voters at polling stations generally mark an X beside the name of their candidate of choice from a pre-written list on a ballot, the incarcerated voter writes the name of this candidate they want to vote for in their writing on the ballot and inserts it into an envelope. Elections Canada says the ballots are open and read out loud in a group of designated observers. If the group agrees on the voter's intention, even if the, person, even if the name is misspelled, the ballot is counted. In the last federal election, there were more than 20,000 ballots cast by Canadian prisoners. Okay, you've been listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. Okay, uh... The audio you heard on today's show and the show itself was recorded and produced on unceded Haudenosaunee, Anishabeg, and Abenakaki territories. Check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m., and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next prison radio show will air on Thursday, October 10th at 5 p.m. If you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-448. 4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A 2B3. Thank you for tuning in to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. My name is Gene, and I've been your host for today. Please stay tuned.
Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You wanted to get you. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just?